trust you had a good short afternoon. Haven't eaten too much where you go to sleep while I'm preaching. Just kind of work on it and stay awake a little bit. And we'll uh, have some things to say that I hope will be of benefit and encouragement to, to all of us. I want to begin by noting with you something out of the sixth chapter of the book of Deuteronomy. I'm all the way back in the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law, which is what the title of the book uh, suggests. Uh, this is in a section of Scripture that was very important to Jewish families. The sixth chapter of the book of Deuteronomy, often these verses are referred to as the uh, Shema, the Shemia, uh, and it's something that the Jews would recite uh, on a regular basis. But in verse 4 it begins, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. You ought to recognize that. Jesus quotes that in the New Testament. And these words which I command you today, verse 6 continues, shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. And they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. When God gave this instruction to the children of Israel, he intended for them to be able to instruct their children, to bring them along to be faithful to God. However, things began to deteriorate. And these things were not being done. As a matter of fact, when we get to the second chapter of the book of Judges, we read this, beginning in verse 10. This is after the death of Joshua. Now when all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them, and they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. Now, I'm using those kind of as a backdrop to what I want to talk to you about. So what I want to do before I go any farther into this lesson is I want to ask a question to each one of you Uh, And that I want you to answer that question as it would apply to you. Those of you who are Christians, I want you to tell, not tell me audibly, obviously, but I want you to answer at least in your own mind, why am I a Christian? Now, if you answered that by saying, well, it's because I was baptized, it was because I believed, it was because I repented, you didn't answer the question. I didn't say, what did you do to become a Christian? I ask the question is, why did you become a Christian? Why am I a Christian? Now, I ask that because I, I just kind of share with you something that may or may not be of interest to you. My wife and I were not raised by Christian parents, either one of us. As a matter of fact, I tell people, and this is the absolute truth, when uh, I was living with mom and dad at home, Prior to my getting married, I believe you could have counted on one hand the number of times that I was ever in any kind of church building of any uh, strife, any kind. 
I just was not raised going to church. My wife, on the other hand, was raised in a very devout denominational home. Her grandfather had been a Nazarene preacher for nearly 50 years. And so she cut, and her mother was a pianist and an organist in that church. Her brothers and sisters uh, recorded so-called gospel music uh, and sang in various venues and sold records. And so that was the kind of family that she came from. Well, when we got married, of course, we brought two different backgrounds into one home. And that was a struggle in and of itself. It kind of goes back to what we were talking about in two lessons uh, this morning. But I am a Christian. And I am a Christian because when I learned what I needed to do in order to please God, and I learned that I was saved or unsaved, I wanted to be saved. And I wanted more than anything to have a relationship with God. That is why I am a Christian. Now, my story is different from the story of others who have been converted to the Lord. But my story is not any better or any worse than anyone else's story. And so I ask again, why are you a Christian? Are you a Christian because you were raised in a Christian home? Are you a Christian be just like you are a native of Georgia? It's just where you happen to be. Are you a Christian be, you know, just because you're part of uh, a, a you know, citizen of this country? I guess, you know, I, it could be like this. If I were born in India, would I be a Hindu? If I were born in Iraq, would I be a Muslim? Well, I'm born in America, so is that why I'm a Christian? I live in, yeah, you know, I live in this state. This is this this is this is why I go, I I go to church. In other words, why are you a Christian? And, and you know, some people are going to answer that question. Well, I am a Christian because I was raised in the church. And what they mean by that is, I was raised by Christian parents. I was raised by parents who brought me to Bible class. I was raised by parents who bring me to VBS or bring me to gospel meetings. And so I was raised in the church. And what they mean by that is I was raised by Christian parents. Someone else would say, well, I am a Christian simply because I inherited the faith of my fathers. I inherited the faith of my mom and my dad and my, my grandparents. And so that's, that's why I'm a Christian. Now, these statements, what we're talking about here, either raised in the church or inherited by faith, they should be positive testimonials. I'm not using them in a derogatory way. They should be positive statements. They should be something that says, you know what? My parents influenced me to be Christians, and this is why I'm a Christian. They taught me at an early age. I'm like Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 15 from childhood. Timothy was told that he knew the Holy Scriptures that were able to make him wise unto salvation, which is by faith in Christ. So these should be positive statements. But in reality, they are often negative statements. And the reason that they're negative statements is because they often pose problems and they often present obstacles that must be solved and must be overcome. And sadly, many, Christ, or many young people who are raised in Christian homes no longer serve the Lord because they were unable to solve these problems and because they were unable to overcome these obstacles. And I, I think there are problems and obstacles that have been laid down and presented by Christian parents 
who did not mean to have these obstacles and these problems. And, and sometimes the problems arise or the obstacles come from first-generation Christians who ought to know better. But yet, these obstacles very often cause our young people to stumble. Now, what our text showed us that we looked at a few moments ago, it showed us that there was a generation, no matter how faithful the previous generation was, no matter how, how loyal they were to God, there's a generation now who did not know the Lord. And this generation forsook the Lord. And they left the faith, the, the, the faith of their, their fathers. Now you just think about it. You think about the Old Testament. You have the, you have the good king Hezekiah. And a lot can be said about good king Hezekiah. But you know when he died his son Manasseh was one of the worst kings in, Israel, in Judah. Now that, that happened in a generation. So you go from a Hezekiah to a Manasseh. In the, in, in the New Testament you find that in Ephesians chapter 1. The Apostle Paul in verses 15 and 16 are praying, he's praying for the Ephesians because of their deep committed faith in God. And you go back to Acts 19 and you find that when the Ephesians were becoming Christians, this first generation of Christians, they so were devoted to the Lord that they burned all of their books of incantation upwards to about $50,000 or $60,000. They didn't burn them because they were committing themselves to Christ. Now you fast forward to the second chapter of the book of Revelation and you find that now the church in the latter part of the first century, now the church had left its first love. In verse 4. And so how, how do these things happen? And there are reasons these things happen. Now I'm not using these reasons as excuses. But I'm using these as explanations. And I'm going to talk to you about some of the reasons this happens. To second generation Christians. In order not to make us feel bad. But in order maybe to preserve some young Christians now. From having these same obstacles and these same difficulties that have caused some other second-generation believers to walk away from the Lord. I think one of the reasons why that second gener some second-generation Christians do not remain faithful to God, even though they had devout, faithful parents, is because we parents taught them how and didn't teach them why. You know, the Bible says in 1 Peter 3 and verse 15, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give an answer or give a defense, which is an answer, to everyone who asks you for a reason or asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. So let me show you what we do. We'll teach our children how to be saved. We'll teach them, well, you need to believe, repent, confess, and be baptized. We teach them that. And, and that's right. Those are good things because this is the way one becomes a Christian. We teach them how to be saved. We teach them how to worship. That is, we worship God in song without an instrument. We worship God in observing the Lord's Supper. We worship God in prayer. We worship God in preaching. We worship God in, in the laying by the storm. And we teach them how to do these things. And so what we're doing is we're raising them children to know how to do the right things. But have we taken time to teach them why we do these things? 
Have we taught them why we do these things that we're teaching them how to do? And how do we respond when a child reaches an age and he comes and he says to us, Hey, why, why don't we have a piano? You know, some parents have an absolute meltdown when a young person comes and asks that question. Why don't we have a piano like Johnny does down at his church? And in fact, what are you, what, what, what are you doing, losing your faith? What, what, what's going on here? No, they just want to know why. And there's not anything wrong with why. There's not anything wrong with our young people asking why. Peter says when this occurs, give an answer to the questioner. Let them know why we're doing these things. What you're doing is instilling in their hearts something that will sustain them. Well, you know, Paul says in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may what? That you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And so what we need to do is, is, is instill in the minds and the hearts of our children why we do these things. You know, Paul also says in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 21, test all things or prove all things, but hold fast to that which is good. Test the spirits, 1 John 4 and verse 1. Test them. You know, examine yourself, 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 5, and see if you're in the faith. Test them. Question. Give an answer to the whys and the wherefores that we're doing these things. Uh, you know, I remember looking back in the book of First uh, Chronicles chapter 28 when David was dying. David calls his son Solomon and he says, Solomon, here's what you need to do. You need to love the Lord with all your heart and you need to trust Him and you need to commit yourself to Him because if you don't, He is going to he'll basically be your enemy. He will bring bad things upon you. Now, we teach our sons and our daughters, okay, you need to be baptized. Why do I need to be baptized? Why do I need to be baptized? So you have to start with why. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And son, that includes you. You are a sinner before God. You are lost before God. You need the blood of Jesus Christ sprinkled upon your conscience. And you receive, you reach the blood of Jesus Christ when you're baptized into water. So you're teaching him not only what to do, but you're teaching him why he needs to do this. He needs to do this because he's a sinner. But I don't want to tell my boy he's a sinner. He's a good boy. I love myself. Well, if you love him, you're going to let him know where he stands before God. So you teach him, yes, what to do, but you teach him why he needs to do it. I think this is sometimes where we lose out. And even in attending the services of the church. You know, we teach our children, okay, you need to go to church. I hear that from so many parents. Well, I tell you what, I raised little Johnny and little Susie to always go to church. I brought them there every time the doors were open. Well, that's good. That's good. But did you explain to them why you're doing this? Did you explain to them that we're coming in the presence of God, that this assembly is unlike any other assembly? It's not like a ball game. It's not like a soccer game. It's not like a, a car race. It's different. We're in the presence of God. And let them know why it's important to us. Nothing wrong with asking why. I think sometimes this is where we have fallen down. 
Some parents have never taught why. And when you don't teach why, you're not preparing the gener that generation or the next generation to be faithful to the Lord. Tell them why. And you know what? In order to tell them why, you've got to know why. Let me, give you, let me give you an illustration of what I'm talking about. Congregation I preached for for several years. There was a family there. It was a good family. Good. I, I just loved them to death. They had two boys. And the older boy, and their, their father served as a deacon in the congregation. The older boy, when he was in high school, he started dating this young girl in high school. And so he invited this young girl to come to worship with him. That's a good thing. Good thing. So she, she would come to worship with him and, and sit with him and sit with the family, and that was a wonderful thing. And one day this boy goes over to his girlfriend's house. Now, they're members of some denomination. And so he's over there at the girlfriend's house, and he's sitting at the table waiting on his girlfriend. And the girl's mother comes in and sits down at the table. And she said, I want to ask you something. Yes, ma'am. Well, my daughter says that when she visits your church that you don't have a piano. You don't have any instruments. That's right. We don't have it. She said, can you tell me why you don't have it? You know what his answer was? He looked that woman in the eye and he said, I, I don't have a clue. We just never have had it. I don't know why. Well, let me tell you. Let me fast forward to today. That boy has lost his faith. That boy no longer attends services. God is not important to him. Now, is there a correlation here? Perhaps. We need to teach our children what to do. But we all also need to teach them how to do and why. They do what they do. Second reason, we teach them how but not why. I think a second reason that second-generation Christians struggle is they were never convicted of their sin. Jesus said in John 16 and verse 8 that when he, the Holy Spirit, when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness, and of judgment. You know, the problem, I think, is sometimes second-generation Christians have never felt the ravages of sin. I, I did. I felt the ravages of sin. I, I, you know what? My life that I lived before becoming a Christian, I've, I've tasted the bitter waters of sin, and I know how awful it is. And I have no desire to be enticed back into that kind of life. But very often our young people, and this is to our credit and it's to their credit, never experience these kinds of sinful, destructive actions. And as a result of never experiencing those things, they just sort of grow up and reach a certain age. Well, it's time for me to be baptized. I'm 12, I'm 13, 14, 15, whatever your Lucy age is. I'm now ready to be baptized. Wait a minute. When I read in the New Testament, especially in the second chapter of the book of Acts, you know what I read before somebody says they're ready to be baptized? In Acts 2 and verse 37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. The truth stung them. The truth penetrated. The truth convicted them. I'm a sinner. 
I need Christ. I need to be saved. And often our young people who have been raised by Christian parents never have that aha moment to occur. I've talked to, I've talked to kids. Kids, the parents will tell me, so, Jerry, I'd like you to talk to my son. He's talking to me about being baptized. That's okay. And so I'll sit down and I'll talk to him about being baptized. And I'll tell him, why, why, do you want, why, why are you asking to be baptized? he said, say, well, I, I want to be a Christian. Okay. Are you not a Christian now? No. Why are you not a Christian now? Because I've not been baptized. I said, are you a sinner? Yes. I said, can you tell me what, what, what some of the sins that you've done? Uh, uh, I disobeyed my parents one time. I know three-year-olds do that. Yeah. Well, well, what else, Will? Uh, I think I lied one time. And so you see, what, what we have—we don't have any conviction. There, there's, there's no, no conviction on their part of I am, I, I am lost before God. And don't misunderstand me. I do not try to talk children out of obeying the Lord. But there's one thing that I recognize that if there's not a conviction of sin and there's not true repentance and remorse here, that all I'm going to do is get that child wet. There has to be some conviction. You know, the worst thing that they've done is maybe disobeyed a parent. This is, this is not what Jesus come to give his life for. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. And we become lost when we violate and break the laws of God. David in the Old Testament, 51st Psalm, reveals to us exactly what I'm talking about here. When he was convicted of sin, when Nathan come and convicted him of sin, the sin that he committed with Bathsheba and the killing of Bathsheba's husband, when David came face to face with how awful he was living, here's what he says to God, in Psalm 51 and verse 2, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before you, against you and you only have I sinned. This is a prelude to becoming faithful to God. A conviction of the sins that we have committed. And we read on down, create in verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. And do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. David's heart was broken. David had a contrite spirit. And he wanted to be right with God. And every time that somebody is baptized into Christ, that has to be their attitude. I, 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 you know what? I've sinned against God. I've broken the laws of God. It's not that I've, you know, done either. I, I, I need a relationship with God because I'm lost. I'll tell you what I do sometimes. Some parents don't like this. But I sometimes talk to these children who desire to be baptized. They're raised by Christian parents. And I'll say something to them like this. I'll say, okay, let, 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 me, let, me, let me ask you this. What if I said to you, 
hey, why don't you just wait a week or two, and we'll talk about it again. Would you be okay with that? Oh, yeah, I'd be okay with that. I'd be good with that. Well, what does that tell you? That tells you that there is no conviction of sin in his or her heart. Because if you've got a conviction of sin, you don't put it off. You go the same hour of the night because you can't live in that condition any longer. Now, when I'm called 2 o'clock in the morning by a parent who tells me, you know, Johnny got me out of bed. He's crying. He's, he's, he's afraid. He knows he's a sinner, and he wants to be saved. Will you meet me at the building? I say, I'll be right there. I'll be right there because Johnny can't wait until the next time the church meets. And so we need sometimes to make sure that there is some conviction here. Do we have that conviction, parents? This is something we need to think about. You know, I tell people, there is a difference in conviction and a preference. Let me show you what I mean by that. You know, a lot of people, even in churches of Christ, don't have a conviction. They have a preference. Why do you go to the church of Christ? Well, I prefer the church of Christ over any other group. I believe that the church of Christ, they try to get it more right than anybody else, so I prefer that. You know what, if I have a preference rather than a conviction, then I'll tell you what I'm likely to do. I'm likely to compromise my preference in order to accommodate the situation. But if I have conviction, I'm going to tell you something. I'm not going to back off of what I believe. One inch, you can put me through uh, the insurrection, and I'm not going to back off. You can, you, whatever you want to do to me, you can do it to me because that's my conviction. And I'm not going to back off of that. Now, if I have a preference, you know, it's, it's sort of like this. You know, people ask, well, well what do you prefer? Well, I, you know, I prefer my coffee black. I prefer my shirts lightly starched. Uh, I prefer, you know, convertibles. You know, I've got a lot of preferences. And so what do you do? You put those, put those preferences in, oh, yeah, and uh, put me down for the Church of Christ. Uh, doesn't work that way. And if I don't have any more than a preference, then my children are not going to have any more than a preference. It's going to be something that, well, that's, 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 good. that's good for mom and dad, so, you know, I'll, I'll do it too. So what the problems are that I think contribute to losing the second generation, they're taught how, but they're not taught why. And they have no conviction of sin. And they have no concept of godly sorrow. And I think these go together. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 10, Godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. You know what he's talking about there? When he's talking about godly sorrow, he's talking about you're sorry that you sinned against God. You're sorry that you broke the heart of God. You're sorry that you broke the commandments of God. Hebrews 6 and verse 6, you're sorry that you have crucified afresh the Son of God. You're sorry, according to Hebrews 10 and verse 29, that you have trampled underfoot the Holy Spirit and God's covenant. These things break your heart. And our young people need to see what sin has done, not only to them or to others, but to God. Now, I don't want you to think that I'm saying that our young people have to go out here and experience sin 
to learn how horrible sin is. I'm not saying that. Thank God that our young people raised by Christian parents have not experienced uh, drugs and have not experienced alcohol and have not experienced premarital sex. And I appreciate that. I appreciate that. But they don't have to go out in the world to experience that, to know how bad it is. As a matter of fact, the proverb writer tells us in Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 20 that wisdom calls aloud outside. She raises her voice in the open spaces. You know what he's saying? He's saying you go out here in the street and you can see an addict, you can see alcoholism, you can see pregnancies, you can see AIDS, and wisdom tells you these things are wrong. These things are, are awful. These things are, are destructive. And this is what our young people need to see and they need to understand. And they'll recognize godly sorrow. If they don't have godly sorrow, I'm telling you, they will develop a box, that's B-O-X, box mentality. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the book. You men, some of you men may be familiar with the book, uh, Every Man's Battle. We're studying Every Man's Battle on Sunday afternoon where I worship in Missouri. This is a book about sexual addiction, pornography, and things of this nature, and helping men to cope with coming away from such filth and trash as that. One of the things that I learned a long time ago in dealing with addiction or dealing with sexual problems that people experience is that every one of these people have a box mentality. And here's what I mean by that. Just picture someone's brain with a number of boxes. Let's do it with rooms. Think of it as a house. And in every house there are certain rooms that you have. You have your living room and you have your bedroom, and you have your kitchen, and you have uh, all of these other rooms in your house. And someone with a box mentality has developed his or her brain that way. That there are certain rooms in my house. I have my church room. And this is where I go to church. And this is where I pray. And this is my church room. And then over here you have your work room. And this is where I go to work. And I don't like to blend those together. And so that's very often why you're very pious at church, but you're very worldly at work. Because you've left this room and you've entered this room. And you can, you can talk about all kinds of, you have your family room, where you have an association with your family. And very often you don't get those rooms mixed up. Because you're very box-oriented. Now, also in that room, is a room that nobody else is allowed into. This is your room. And this is a room that the wife or the husband never is allowed to enter in. It's a room where the church is not allowed to enter in. It's a room where God is not allowed to enter. This is the room where I engage in pornography. This is the room where I engage in bigotry. This is the room where I engage in hate. This is a room where I engage in lying. This is a room where I engage in drinking and drugs and anything else. This is the room that nobody else is allowed into. And if we're raising our children not to understand godly sorrow, we're teaching them to build these rooms. 
and you'll have a room where nobody else is allowed into. That's the reason they can go to church. And then pretty soon you got a 16-year-old daughter that's pregnant. We see she's got this other room she's been in too. And she hasn't let you in. So what we need to do is teach our children how to have godly sorrow by opening that up. We don't have a compartmental religion. We don't have a box mentality. We don't have a secret room where we engage in things that are wrong. They need to understand that all that sin violates the law of God and it breaks God's heart whether I'm in my church room or whether I'm in my living room or whether I'm in this dark room. Our young people need to learn what it means to have godly sorrow. And when they learn that, I'll tell you what, it shocks their moral sensibilities. But another problem I think we have with second generation Christians, in addition to having no concept of godly sorrow, is that they've never learned really to appreciate God's grace. You know, we're saved by grace through faith. And that not of ourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. This is the means by which we are saved, Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. But you know what we do sometimes? We raise our children to look at Christianity, look at a relationship with God in a group or in a collective way. That is, our relationship with God is dependent upon the collectivity or the group that I happen to be associated with. I've got my name on a roll at church. Mom and dad are faithful Christians, and I've been going to church all my life. Granddad was a preacher. Mom was a gospel uh, or was a teacher. And, and you know what? I'm okay. No, wait a minute. You've not been saved by the grace of God. Salvation is by the grace of God, and it is an individual salvation not based upon any family heritage, not based upon any name being on a church registry, it's based upon a relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. We're saved by the blood of Christ. We're not redeemed with perishable things, Peter points out in 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19. Now, let me, let me, let, 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 let me show you what I mean. In a congregation I was preaching for, we converted a couple. I mean, they came out of the world... They were worldly. They, they, they had a bad, bad life. As, as, as a matter of fact, you could look at, at, at the man and, and know where he'd come from. He had tattoos all over his face, neck, arms, and shoulders, just everywhere. He, had, he just covered with tattoos. And that was because of the lifestyle that he'd been living. I remember when I baptized him. We were standing in the water before the curtains opened up. He told me, whispered in my ear, he said, J.R., I, 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 I wish the Baptist would wash these tattoos off my body. I said, it won't, son. But I'll tell you what it'll do. It'll wash any stain off your heart. You don't have that to worry about. It's okay. It's okay. Now, there's some people there in the congregation been raised by Christian parents, been raised in the church. Well, this couple that we had baptized, you know what they did? They started working with some of their friends that they had known in the world and trying to get them to come to church and trying to get them to be saved. And so they invite this guy in, and he's got a drug problem, and he's lived a wicked and immoral life, 
and he comes in to hear the gospel preached. And he comes in and he sits down and guess what? Nobody goes up and talks to him. And there's some that have been raised in the church were heard to say when they looked across and saw this boy sitting there, they said to each other, what is he doing here? You've got to be kidding me. Is that not pharisaical? Doesn't that sound like what the Pharisee said when he looked over at the publican? What's he doing here praying in the temple? Well, where else would he be? This is where he needs to be. But you know, somebody that has that what's he doing here mentality have never experienced the grace of God. We're saved by grace. And I'm going to tell you, it takes as much of God's grace and God's mercy and it takes as much of the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse me if I've been raised in the church as it does that man who has been living an awful lifestyle. We're saved alike by grace through faith. Reaching the blood of Jesus Christ. We fail to understand that. And when we fail to understand that, we fail to understand addictions. We fail to understand sins. You know, we're... You know, any sin that's done that's not the sins that I do, then I tend, don't, uh, I, I tend not to understand them. And that's the way that a lot of people are. Well, I don't do that, so you shouldn't do it either. I've never been tempted to do that, and so you know what? You shouldn't have been either. Now, that's somebody that's never experienced the grace of God. We become very judgmental. We become very unforgiving. And very often, this is what happens when our young people reach an age and they just be baptized and there's never been no conviction, no godly sorrow, no experience in the grace of God. And we sometimes then have people that come in and obey the gospel and we don't speak to them, we hold grudges. And I think the reason is we fail to appreciate the grace of God. And finally... I believe that another problem is we've never exposed our children to biblical work ethics. You know, we are his workmanship, Ephesians 2 and verse 10, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. We, we need to recognize that God expects us, when we become Christians, to get busy in his kingdom, to work diligently in his kingdom. Now, how many young people... Do you see in various churches that are actually very active in what's going on? Oh, you've got older people who are active. You know, a lot, a lot of churches, you know, they, uh, they, they have a lot of things going on, and a lot of old people are involved in that. But many second-generation Christians do not involve themselves in that because we've not taught our children a biblical work ethic. Now, parents are active. Parents attend gospel meetings. Where's so-and-so? Well, he had a test, and he had to stay home and study for the test. Not active. Not active. Well, we're going to have a we're, we're going to have a cleanup day around the church building. Okay, and you've got these older brothers there, and some of the older sisters there. Where are the young people? Well, they had things they had to do. It's Saturday, you know. They, they so we're not teaching them a biblical working. And so we need to do that. We need to teach them that they need to be involved in the work of the church. No matter what it is, it's going on. And I'll tell you what, I, I've seen some young people here that are very active, and you encourage me. Because I tell you, you are an anomaly 
when it comes to what I've experienced in many places that I've been. If you want to be, if you want to see a congregation that grows and prospers, you're going to see a congregation that doesn't push its young people off to the side. You see a congregation that pulls their young people to the foyer, to the front, and put them to work. Whether it's visitation, whether it's visiting the sick, whether it's teaching the gospel, whether it's leading sin, whatever it is. You put them in the front. We need to get our young people involved. Just coming and sitting in a building, not being involved, is not going to have any lasting impression upon our young people. Second generation Christians, they have a leg up on a lot of us that came out of denominationalism, and I, I honor them for that. But they have some obstacles and they have some problems that we've created. I've created that among my own children. I know that. I remember one time asking my children, who had been, quote, raised in the church. We were sitting around the house one day, and I got to asking them. We got to talking about when Sue and I came out of denominationalism, and I asked them this question. 